the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Mark Stevens, founder of Arakan Advisory Capital, regarding the defence strategic review's impacts on Australian defence industry. And for this episode, I'm joined once again by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing today? Good, great. Good to be back. Excellent. And uh, of course, Mark, welcome to the show. Great to have you back again. Hey, Grant. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a while since we spoke, but uh, very, very happy to be here uh, back with ADM having a conversation. You know, one of the most significant uh, announcements in uh, the defence landscape for decades. It certainly is. And so with that in mind, I think we should uh, get started right into the heart of it. So Army's taking a brunt from this. The number of infantry fighting vehicles that are going to be purchased has been slashed. They're dumping the second regiment of self-propelled howitzers. It's all going to have a major impact on Australian industry. Many of the remaining purchases seem to either be FMS or will have a significant foreign component. So do you think this major reduction in Australian industry expenditure is going to be balanced over the next two to three years by AUKUS, Pillar 2s, shipbuilding, base expansions, missiles, all that? Yeah, look, uh, thanks, Grant. It's a good question. Look, if we start with the IFBs, depending on who the Commonwealth chooses to be the supplier, of course, between Hanwar and Ramatal, I think it's true that certainly in Hanwar's case that even though the number has been reduced, they're going to continue to create that facility that I think we all drove past uh, on our way to Avalon uh, earlier this year. The, the plan is to build three halls, that's three production lines. The, the reason I think that that won't change is because Hanwha intends to build all of its global production of redbacks here in Geelong. So regardless of whether Australia or any other country is a is a customer for that platform, they're all going to be built here. So from an Australian industry perspective, in relation to Hanwha only, then the news regarding the Australian numbers really are inconsequential as far as the impact on the Australian industry is concerned, which I think is great news. You know, great news for, for Australia, great news for Australian industry who are plugged into the Hanwha supply chain. I'm guessing that Ram Mattel will probably make a similar announcement we, we actually don't have a dog in the fight, so we're not advising either Hanwha or, or Ram Mattel for Land 400 Phase 3. Ram Mattel has uh, you know, announced that it's going to do a significant amount of its link production uh, in southeast Queensland. I'm, I'm not sure whether it's the same as Hanwha. So I don't think the IFB decision in itself has a massive impact upon Australian industry from a supplier perspective for the build but certainly the size of the sustainment activity with a reduction has a significant impact. And I think that's what we're going to see it in the longer term. There'll be less vehicles to, to sustain. And so therefore there'll be a you know lower budget uh, and uh, less work for those Australian companies who are hoping to be part of the sustainment solution for uh, Land 400 base. Right? And that's also the impact with the self-propelled howitzers as well. Uh, there'll only be half as many of those. Yeah, that's an interesting decision. Yeah, interesting decision. I mean, Army's getting its new Abrams, but they're not getting the second regiment of self-propelled guns. I, I think that's a, 
that decision, I think, is inconsistent with the narrative of D- out of DSR. I'm su- I am actually surprised by that. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Army's happy to get, you know, a regiment of self-propelled guns. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, as far as you know, artillery is concerned, um, you know, I think it, it, it's a it, it's a reasonable result. I mean, if you look at the combined arms system that Army's been talking about, you've got new medium-range helicopter, new attack helicopter, new Abrams, you've got IFBs, you know, you've got pretty much all of the significant components of the combined arms system being delivered. You know, I think it's interesting that we haven't had any major announcements for airports, for instance, out of the DSR. Mm. So there wasn't a extra squadron of 35s. You know, B-21 has been knocked on the head. Maybe there are more announcements to come in relation to airports. But, uh, you know, across the board, I think what we were expecting and what we've seen, there's been, you know, enough difference for us to be thinking about, okay, well, you know, what are the, you know, the shorter term announcements likely to look like over the next few weeks and months? Well, Army are also going to get high Mars uh, yeah. for long range, but almost everything that they're getting, the helicopters, the uh, the high Mars and the tanks are all FMS, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think that you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think we are going to see... Uh, a far greater use of FMS as far as acquisition is concerned. The, the reality is that for all the announcements out of DSR about hastening uh, the procurement program, Defence actually already has all the levers that it needs to do that. So it has Smart Buyer and, and DEFCON. It has you know a number of avenues there for it to fasten or hasten, sorry, the procurement process. The We may come back to this and talk about it later, but the impediment is not process, it's culture actually, and culture is much more difficult to change. And I think that, you know, I know Chris Thiebaud's talking about um, CASD 2.0. I think we'd all be happy to see CASD 1.1, really, which is about (laughs) CASD using the tools that it's got available to it now to do things in relation to the uh, fast-tracking of procurement. All those processes exist. It's just a matter of uh, CASB culturally being prepared to do what it needs to do to meet their government's expectations, and I think they're going to be under a lot of pressure to do that. Mark, on on the topic of Phase 3 and you know, Hanwha's investment in Geelong, both Hanwha and Raimata will now have to go through a rebid process, I imagine, for Phase 3, yeah, which, they've, yeah. Yeah, which they've already had to do um, you know, when they were asked to revise the bids down to 300. So we're now into their second the, the second time this has happened, and by scaling back the IFV and the howitzers, the government's taking something like fifteen billion, you know, out of industry. But it, yet we're still going ahead with the purchase of seventy-two tanks through FMS. So where does that leave Australian industry? You know, looking to plug into these new programs we built in Australia, when at, at any minute things could just be cancelled and bought through FMS is the first question. And then I think as a follow-up to that. 72 th- tanks bought through SM- FMS that we're now proceeding with. Now we're dropping the number of biofeeds back to you know 129 and we're giving up one regiment of self-propelled howitzers. Where, where's the justification for for 72 tanks? It seems very disproportionate. It is, look, I think it's right, especially when we've already got tanks. Right? So we've mm. already got Abrams. So it, that's why, as I said at the start, I think it, it's some inconsistencies in the approach because – from my mind, I would have thought that you run with the tanks you've got 
and you probably you know buy more IFEs or maybe you do that second regiment of self-propelled guns to give you greater firepower flexibility. So I think that I, I do think that's an inconsistency. I think the new government's sort of narrative on Australian uh, industry has, is subtly a bit different to the previous government. So under the Morrison government, we had a very strong focus on AIC for AIC's sake. If you talk to the new government, then what they'll say is, look, AIC, Australian industry is still important, but AIC is not as important to us as it was the previous government. And really what they're talking about is sovereign supply chains. And then there's this new term, sovereign ready, which we can sort of talk about uh, if you want to go into some more detail. Sovereign ready is really about recognising the distance between where defence industry is now and where it needs to be to be part of a nuclear submarine program, which is massive. And I've, I've said publicly already, you may have picked it up, that I believe there's only one or two companies in Australia that are sovereign ready now to go into a submarine supply chain. And I think, in, interestingly, in the uh, new reconstruction fund that, the, that uh, launches on the 1st of July, there's a billion dollars in that fund out of the $3.8 billion which is the defence capability, which is really focused on trying to get Australian industry sovereign ready for the submarine program. That's uh, that's uh, the nature of that uh, investment. It's not a they're not grants either, by the way. They're investments ex- expecting a commercial return. But I think otherwise, you know, I think there's not a lot to like for industry in the Australian industry and the DSR. When the government looks at industry. You know, I think we've spoken before, you and about Burden, who we've got a close association with. You know, they're building Vessel Zero for the um, literal manoeuvre vessel medium to de-risk the program for defence. I think if you want to understand what defence, what Australian industry's role with defence going forward, it looks a, more, a lot more like that than what it does about uh, the, the, you know, what we've seen in the past. And I think this desire by Australian industry for the government to act more like the US government in the way in which it stimulates its defence industry and the way in which it funds it, I just think is completely outside of the current government's thinking about you know, what uh, what an Australian defence industry might look like. And that, you know, obviously we had the announcement uh, late last week uh, with uh, Tanya Munro of um, the uh, was it ARSA or whatever, it, uh, ARCA or whatever it's called, the Advanced Strategic um, Research Agency, ASRA. It's inevitably it's going to be focused at the top end of the industry spectrum. Those organisations that can produce platforms of consequence. And you know, if we if we keep in mind that there are about 3,200 companies in the defence industry ecosystem in Australia, of which 2,950 or thereabouts. A micro to small, about you know 18 or ASX listed, and then there's 150 odd in the middle who are investable. You've got a massive part of Australian defence industry who are still searching for a way to be involved, and uh, you don't have a you don't have the capital markets coverage to support those guys. You don't have uh, you know a number enough high net worth individuals available to back them. You know we've got a massive probably got 2,150 companies looking for solutions, and I'm not sure that the DSR provides that for them. Yeah, you've you've certainly got the situation where you were just referencing 
the replacement of a number of funds by the new top-end boffin world, but they're not bringing the new one in and phasing out the others. They're just cancelling the others and bring the new one, which is going to take a year or so to get under underway and figure itself out. And meanwhile, the IIP is probably going to have the same thing done. Not that that's ever been held up as a brilliant example of it working perfectly, but especially I know uh, some folks who are still waiting for certain reports that were promised way back when it was interest- introduced. But uh, you know, it, it's, it seems like it's a, and this comes also to the CASG situation, not fit for purpose. As you said, it's we want 1.1. Your processes are good. Just do them. Yeah, uh, you know, culture, you know, in, in consulting, there's a, you know, measure which is every, you know, 10 years that an organisation has been in existence, it takes a year to change them or, you know, Army's been around for over 100 years. Uh, I don't know, you know, CASD has been around for as long as I can remember in one form or another. You know, they're big, they're big cultural changes and, you know, uh, Orchid Pillar 2, which is something else that we've spoken about previously, I think, you know, it's a great list. But again, you know, I think it's going to take time before we start seeing uh, opportunities for Australian industry in in um, in Orcus Pillar 2. But, you know, we're already seeing some in under siege and autonomous. So obviously you've got what Andrew is doing, doing on Go Shark. You've got what OCS is doing with Blue Bottle on the surface unmanned, uh, you know, they uh, obviously go that. Uh, you've got, you know, a number of platforms, but I think that the number of companies that can deliver platform-related solutions to defence's problems aren't in the 2,950 that we just talked about. And, and you know, and therein, I think, lies the challenge. Mark, I'm happy to um, circle back to industry in a minute, but I do have a burning question to ask you. The, the DSR, as far as... The strategic outlook for the ADF and for Australia goes is causing Army to have a bit of a identity crisis. What's the mood in Army? What is the future of the Australian Army? Are we looking at a force that's going to become more like the the Marine Corps, or are we, you know, looking at an Army that will be an adjusted version of what we've already had? Yeah. So look, uh, you know, the, the example, well, the comparison to the Marine Corps, Ewan, is interesting, right? So, um, the, the you know the Marine Corps uh, changed itself. You know, I think it's a really interesting uh, example, right? So Berger uh, disintermediated, disintermediated the Marine Corps himself and in doing so sort of main, maintained control of that narrative. And I think that not just for Army, you know, I think for Air Force as well and, and maybe depending on what happens with the Navy review, maybe for Navy as well, that the DSR is changing them and it, so, you know, it's quite different trying to control things that come from outside rather than controlling it within. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, Army, I think it's well-led. So, you know, I think uh, Simon Stewart's a great chief. I think there are some really good people in there, you know, Richard Vag and uh, and others that, you know, we know pretty well. You know, on the surface, you know, Army's positive, obviously. I think they do genuinely see opportunities for uh, for a persistent presence. They believe that they can provide, you know, you know, excellent levels of asymmetry, great value for money. Uh, they they're able to provide utility that's not provided by the domain, like close combat, for instance. You know, anything that involves soldiers, you know, boots on the ground is uh, is something that only the land uh, that only land combat can provide. But I, you know, I think the army that we know is not the army that is going to uh, result out of this. Uh, there's some very 
tough decisions that need to be made about what the force in being needs to look like. Obviously, there's been a massive investment grant, as you say, in things like HIMARS, and, and uh, Army's going to be much more a missile force than what it's ever been. And I note Pat Conroy's comment uh, at the release of the DSR about increasing Army's lethality from 40 kilometres to 300 kilometres. And, you know, I completely respect that that's absolutely true out of the decisions that uh, have been made. The thing about Army, I think, is that its focus has really always been as, as a player or its contribution in the joint force. And I had an interesting comment made to me at Avalon by a senior Air Force officer who said, you know, we we spend 10, 10% of our time talking about the joint force and 90% of our time focusing on Air Force. Army spends 90% of its time talking about the joint force and 10% of its time on, uh, on the land domain, you know, and I think this, you know, we see the consequence of that today that, you know, Army for the first time in its history is really being asked to justify its existence and that's never happened before. And I think that therein lies the challenge. And, you know, I know in my own mind in talking to people, uh, you know, reporters and, you know, other commentators around defence when people have asked me about what Army's role going to be you know, into the future, you know, I too, have, you know, I've got a pretty clear understanding, I think, about uh, the um, combined arms system and close combat and, uh, and you know, boots on the ground and, you know, being able to seize and hold ground and, all, and you know, and fight the literal battle. That, those things are all sort of fairly straightforward, but I don't think it's necessarily something that people at this stage see as being part of the ADF's role into the future. And I think that's the challenge for armies really being able to communicate that. You know, Mark, one of the arguments that has, has come up in the past when uh, the focused force approach has been taken to the ADF is that the war that is expected is not always the war that we get. And our armies, in the past, armies' justification for its existence has been exactly that, that you can't plan to that degree of detail. And it may be that the army is actually required, um, you know, back in a, more, in a counterterrorism role or um, in something like that. The decisions of the DSR, um, will they reduce Army's flexibility to respond to a range of contingencies? And is are we becoming too focused? Look, I, I'm all in favour of a focus on literal manoeuvre. You know, I think it's been a massive weakness uh, for us, given our, our geography. And I think, uh, you know, climate change is one of the great risks uh, to um, our national security. And I think having greater capacity to uh, to reach into the Pacific and provide assistance to those countries that are going to be most impacted earliest by climate change is a massive strategic imperative, which I think BSR does address pretty, pretty successfully. Um, I take your point, Ewan, about, uh, you know, I take your point. I, I think in my mind, I've always thought about the Army as being a force that, you know, had a series of options. Optionality was always key. So, you know, when CDF goes to the Prime Minister and he says, we want to go and do X or Y, or C says, we want to do X or Y, then Army, you know, it, it, it has a card that it can pull out of the pack to meet that requirement. And, and I think it's absolutely the case that DSR does force Army to narrow its options as far as that is concerned. But, you know, I think, you know, in my mind, this is phase one of a strategic reset. People are talking about there being another sort of review in 2026, it'll be interesting to think about what our geopolitical situation is going to look like in 2026. You know, in my mind, 
uh, we're already at war with the Chinese and, uh, you know, in the cyber domain, we've got, you know, tens of thousands of cyber attacks every day against, uh, against uh, not just defence, but against Australian critical infrastructure organised by government players like the Russians and the Chinese. And so, you know, in one sense, we're already there. So, uh, you know, I, I think... I don't think it, I think this is the uh, end of the beginning, you know, to quote Churchill, uh, or the beginning of the end, maybe as far as where we need to get to. But I think there's a hell of a lot more conversation that's going to be had about, you know, the role of all of the domains, not just army, not just land, maritime, and air, but also space and cyber. Uh, and uh, I, I think you know the DSR is a start, but it's certainly not the finish about what we're going to look like. But the short answer to your question is here, I think. Um, his options are being narrowed as a consequence of the focus to the DSR. We do have the uh, Navy review coming up in a few months, so to speak, where they've spun off that side review. And I think they were committing to another bit, some other sort of review in 2024 from memory. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be, like you said, series of chains of change. But the, I mean, this whole making sure we're sovereign ready for subs that won't be here until well after the 2020s are done. And it seems like it's almost like, yep, they'll be ready for whatever comes next after all the stuff we're building to now gets done. Yeah, look, um, there are three reviews, just in, by the way. There's the neighbour review, there's the Goyo review, and there's also an infrastructure review all, that were all announced in the DSR, which are now underway. And, you know, those in those three areas, uh, you know, infrastructure as well, there's massive uh, spend required, especially in the, in the north. So, you know, I think there's you know a hell of a lot more detail to come. Uh, in relation to sovereign ready, we, you know, we're going to see uh, suit class and Virginia class boats here in Australia, you know, much more frequently, much sooner. And I, I think it's reasonable to expect that there are going to be local sustainment opportunities on those US and UK boats sooner than what we think. The other reality too, of course, is that the US supply chain for the construction of Virginia class boats is at, at, at capacity. And in fact, uh, and we know because we have HII as a client here in Australia, that there is a genuinely significant interest in getting Australian companies into the global supply chain for Virginia class boats in the US. So any work that's being done now on Sovereign Ready can immediately be transferred into the, uh, into the VPS global supply chain, even if it's for both being, you know, being manufactured or sustained uh, in the US. And I think that's, you know, for those people who have, who want to be in that space, there's an immediate opportunity right now to uh, to be, you know, work talking to Electric Boat, talking to HII about getting into those uh, global supply chains. And I think that they'd get a pretty warm reception from both of those countries, you know, there because there are components on those vessels, which are only made by a single manufacturer in the US. And uh, there's you know, quite a lot of supply, there's a lot of brittleness in that supply chain, which I think the Americans are hoping that, that uh, manufacturers here in Australia can alleviate you know, by joining the program. And I, and I think that that then gives you the capacity to prepare for being you know, an, an integral part of the local manufacturer here in the fullness of time. You know, I think that at this stage, the government's saying, you know, absolutely, we're going to build submarines here. Uh, you know, I wonder whether when we've got five Virginia-class submarines of our own here in Australia, whether you do go and build 
another class of submarine, given you've already got the, the most highly um, capable expression of that combat capability already in your Navy. So I think, you know, we'll be interested to see how that pans out. But I, I do take it as read right now that the government is absolutely committed to uh, SSN AUKUS and that it's going to be built in Osborne. But, you know, I think the priority for Australian companies who want to be in that supply chain in the, here in Australia to get into the US supply chain ASAP. You said just then, Mark, um, commitment. And it strikes me as a funny word to use in the context of the government. If you think of the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so, 15 years, you know, we've said, oh, we want diesel electric boats. And then all of a sudden we want nuclear boats. We said we want howitzers, then we don't want howitzers, then we want howitzers again, and then we now we only want half a number of howitzers. It's, uh, commitment is a, um, you know, when the government says it's committed to a program, historically that actually seems to be quite inconsistent because, as you said, Australia is going through, I think, a large strategic reset where it's realising, I think, the constraints of being a middle power in Asia and what those constraints are on its, on its military. But then for industry it's very difficult to take that then at face value. And if you're an Australian supplier looking to plug into something like Virginia class, obviously at the moment it would seem like that's a great idea and they're going to be in the supply, global supply chain for the VCS and whatever else. But, um, you know, many companies might have thought that about a lot of Australian programs and they've ended up, um, you know, three years later being subject to another review written by, um, you know, in part by former uniforms in the ADF. So when the government and the ADF can't make up its mind about what it wants to be, industry must then just be feeling that how can we plan for anything? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of people who are under a massive amount of pressure in their businesses because they have, you know, tapped the the, the future of their businesses to, you know, more than one uh, opportunity in defence, only to see all of the cards that they were trying to play, you know, be placed on hold. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think that the government, I think they have an unrealistic view about what uh, what uh, industry's um, resilience looks like here. You know, I think it's because we've got, we've got into this pattern of behaviour where we don't put industry first. And I, I had a really interesting conversation with Jeremy King about this recently, you know, when we when we eventually did sign off on the Blackhawks, that uh, he was able to go to the US to the production line, and he and Shane Fairweather, you know, signed the fuselage of the first of Australia's order that was going to be delivered. And that was two weeks after the announcement because Lockheed Martin have continued to manufacture Blackhawks at a steady rate, regardless of the order pipeline for the last twenty years. And what happens is that when a Blackhawk comes off the production line, if there isn't an FMS client for that or country for that Blackhawk, it just goes into the US uh, Army and they retire the next oldest Blackhawk uh, out of the system, right? And so, uh, you know, you know, you talk to HII, for instance, and I'll tell you that they've never written a tender. In the history of their uh, business, they've never written a tender because the, um, the the Navy just gives them an order for a, an 85-year order for a, sub, for a aircraft carrier or it gives them a, you know, 30-year order for a submarine, which is design, construction, sustainment, retirement, right? And those uh, those orders just keep coming, you know, like, like they're sort of time-based. And 
you know, we, I think the challenge for crane industry is we look at that model and we say, well, why can't we be like it? Well, reality is we're never going to be like that. And, um, but having said that, um, stronger decisions with more certainty earlier is something we could absolutely be doing. And I think that, but, but, you know, the situation you describe, Ewan, the challenge is that we don't have a big enough budget to get all of the things that we need to be able to do the job that we want the ADF to do, which is to be able to be significant enough in size and capability that it it deters anyone from ch- trying to do something to us, be it here in Australia or in, in on those maritime approaches to Australia. And so I think what we're seeing at the moment is the government sort of you know, almost like eating its own young, basically trying to work out, well, how do we maximise our effectiveness, you know, with but within the constraints that we've got given that, especially for the Labor Party, you know, we've got a historical commitment to education, healthcare, welfare, all that sort of things that, that the majority of people who voted for the Labor Party voted for, you know. So you've got this interesting uh, and complex challenge that, uh, that, uh, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer and the Finance Minister and the Defence Minister and the Defence Industry Minister are trying to manage. So, you know, my, my my sense is that as our geopolitical situation worsens, the pressure will get greater to do uh, what we need to do and we're going to get to an inflection point and suddenly the, they'll be turning the taps on as far as getting the capability that we need. But I, I think, as we've all seen, the supply chain constraints are such that you just can't turn that on at the time that it suits you. And I think that's the, you know, the Gordian knot, if you like, around all of this is, uh, is that, uh, you know, even in relation to, you know, Hanwha's construction of IFEs in Geelong, I think Hanwha's been very clear to say, we're still going to build them all down there, but if the ADF wants more, they have to join the queue. Like they're just not going to be able to pluck the ones out at the front you know, they're coming out because if we've got Poland as a customer or we've got the UK as a customer or the US, well, the ADF will just have to join the production line behind those guys. And I think that's going to be, you know, once we deal with the financial challenge and there'll be a supply chain challenge, which uh, is likely to be that the supply chain can't respond fast enough to a government that has the money to spend but hasn't given the supply chain enough time to respond. So, you know, I think that's the problem. Well, Mark, let's come back to industry and capability. And you mentioned Guios. Yeah. Uh, if we've learned anything from from watching Ukraine, it's that you can't get enough munitions. That, that is a big problem is having enough munitions, getting enough supplies. So we're talking about $4.1 billion for long-range strikes. So how much of that do you think is going to go into industry versus FMS? And do you think government's going to set up enough capability sovereign within the country that if our sea routes are being blockaded or in trouble, that we're going to be able to make enough of these long-range missiles to be able to hold everyone off from coming on shore and discovering how our army's been cut right back from being able to do ground defence. Look, uh, look, I think the, um, the DSR is unclear about what the plan is. When, if we wind the clock back to the announcement about who the partners were for GUIO, obviously Lockheed Martin and Raytheon were selected early, and then you've got um, AMC and the Sovereign Missile Alliance. 
in there as well. I mean, my understanding from talking to the guys at AMC is that they've been told that that there will be local manufacture of missiles here in Australia. You'd have to think, though, Grant, that the IP for those missiles sits in you know Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. So, yeah, that's obviously where the revenue is going to go first. I would suspect that it's probably going to be like the program we had for F-35s where the government will look to maximise Australian sovereign involvement in the in the local construction so where you can swap out a US component for an Australian component, then that's probably what will happen. And you know, I think in the US as well, the supply chain challenges they've got with building missiles will be alleviated somewhat by Australia having a you know a corresponding or parallel capability. But the you know as far as where's, where's the funding going, I think it's going to Lockheed and to Raytheon, and then it'll come back into AMC and SMA, and then into their subcontractors. I think that's you know that's what the pathway for revenue looks like. Um, I know that the numbers that Lockheed Martin and Raytheon gave to the Commonwealth for missile production was, were pretty big numbers, like super big, as you can imagine. And, you know, none of those, you know, the, the actual, I mean, I think there has been some conversation about budget, initial budget for Guayo, like $3 billion or $4 billion or whatever it was, uh, is, in, uh, is in the report, although there's a review of Guayo going on again now about I think it's more about how to spend that money rather than the money itself. But again, I think that's the initial investment. I don't think it's the end state. But for the time being, it's pretty much, you know, across all of the capabilities that the government is prepared to invest in, the amount that they can afford to invest in GUIO is that number. You know, so we're going to find ourselves doing the best that we can with that number. But I think the, you know, the the the, the money flow is going to be into Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and then back down into uh, AMC and the Sovereign Missile Alliance who are going to be partners for those companies using their production lines to manufacture under license those, um, the, the Lockheed Martin and Raytheon missiles. But realistically in that scenario, the key thing that we're looking for is the ability to keep building here in Australia when we can't get anything, oh, I don't know, such as the next ship of oil from Singapore yeah, or the yeah. USA, you know, <laughs> and let's yeah, let's yeah. not even go into the whole concept of, hey, how about they invade during the wet season up north? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Look, I, I, I think there there are going to be components in those missiles that can't be manufactured here, you know, so they're going to have to come from the US. But I think there's a lot, there are large parts of those missiles that can be done here and will be done here, and it's just really trying to understand what that balance looks like. I, you know, I think the other comment that I'd make is that what AUKUS does, I think it does challenge, it provides greater challenges to the US and it does to Australia uh, through things like ITAR and the Berry Amendment and the Munitions Act. You know, the, 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 I think there is genuine commitment by the US uh, government to give Australia, you know, uh, a um, can, you know the, the similar arrangements that Canada has, for instance, for those three uh, for those three barriers. So, you know, I don't know how long that will take, but uh, you know, until the time as it is uh, fixed, then uh, you know that, maybe that gives us the time to create the capability before we actually start manufacturing. I don't know how long that's going to take, but it's something we've been talking about since September 21, 
we're still not there, but it absolutely is a critical first step before we can start doing the things that we're talking about. So moving on from there then, the government has agreed to the recommendation that AIC and domestic productivity be balanced against timely capability acquisition. Mm. <laughs> Are we sacrificing industry to get capability faster and then struggling with sustainment? Or you've spoken about uh, sovereign ready for, for Navy and so on and how that can build, same with GUIO. How do you see that going for everything else? So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you look in the, reading the DSR, it talks about how they want CASB to, to speed up. And then they talk about the fact that they're going to be doing more purchases through SMS, right? Which is, uh, which already exists, you know, it doesn't require CASB to, to, to change at all, really. Um, you know, I think that, I think we are going to see more through the FMS channel. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but and it depends on the reason for it. So, if the if it, you know, I think one of the things that uh, that has become clear out of the DSR is this very focus by defence on buying what's ready now rather than what might be ready. And if what we're saying is that we have to use FMS to do that. Well, that, that's just that's just completely untrue. You know, we as I think we've already covered. You know, we can easily, uh, you know, pull the levers on through smart buyer or through a whole range of different mechanisms which we in, in SDFCon to achieve that locally. So I think that you know that's a, uh, that's an excuse, you know, rather than a solution. Um, in relation to FMS, uh, you know, I think we've been talking to our clients for probably. Well, since AUKUS was announced about getting into international supply chains, not you know not as, a, as necessarily uh, an activity which is an end state in itself, but we just think that uh, that in AUKUS that we need to stop thinking about the US versus Australia versus the UK, but think about supplying into AUKUS as a singular activity. And the reality is that the majority of the companies that are going to have the most delivery capacity in AUKUS have, happen to be headquartered in the US and the UK, right, and not here. So what we're saying is that if you want to be in AUKUS and, uh, you know, we've, we have an office in the US and, you know, we, we're doing a lot of work with US companies uh, coming into AUKUS, not necessarily into Australia, but uh, being interested in supplying into uh, the Indo-Pacific then really it's about how do you create a space for yourself within AUKUS, thinking about AUKUS as a singular entity, but with the companies that are that are going to be preeminent in that entity largely being headquartered in countries other than Australia. And so how do you sort of fit yourself into those, you know, I think is the way in which we've been sort of describing it to others. It seems like the British have done very well out of, uh, out of AUKUS, or British industry particularly. Is that... I mean, is that an accurate view? No, I, I, I don't think that's. I mean, I think. Well, I think you know the jury's out about. Um, I mean, Gabby Cosbigan was doing the moonwalk at Avalon. You know, she was uh, uh, that uh, BAE were going to be building SSN Orcus, and uh, you know, it was all sort of uh, pretty upbeat. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily been decided. I, I think the UK has its own significant geopolitical challenges at the moment as far as its defence force is concerned. The Army's been absolutely stripped bare to try and support the Navy, especially the their aircraft carriers, you know, one of which is, you know, laid up uh, at the moment. I understand you've got 
Financial crewing, you know, filling some of the billets on some of those ships for the Royal Navy because they haven't got enough people, they don't have enough pilots for their F-35s. You know, I think they're in a, they're in a hurt locker. Um, so, you know, I think the US um, is, I think the US is far more committed to AUKUS, and as a consequence, is far more involved in what's happening than the UK. UN would be my assessment. That's interesting, actually, to mention, you know, the UK relying on overseas talent to fill roles on these aircraft carriers. I mean, Australia is doing that, um, you know, on our Colin-class submarines. I think it came out today yeah. that a lot of the commanders are from overseas. <laughs> That's for our ex- existing our existing fleet of submarines. And in addition, the review of the surface fleet later in the year is going to be run by an American admiral. Um, you know, I would have thought that there would be an Australian who could do that. So if we're already in that position of relying on overseas talent, uh, what's it going to look like when we're trying to stand up an entire fleet of nuclear-powered submarines? So, I, you know, people say, you know, it's a pretty, it pretty easily rolls off people's tongues that, you know, the nuclear submarine capability is a national endeavour. You know, I, I think every, everyone's talking about that. I don't think anyone really thinks, you know, significantly about what it, you know, what it looks like. We'll, we'll get a sense for what's involved once our crews start swapping in and out of uh, US Virginia class boats or UK two class boats, which you know I think is the plan that that Australian uh, sailors and uh, naval officers will start filling billets on those on those platforms. Uh, you know I think uh, you know it's a bit like you know it's a bit like newly married. You know we're in the honeymoon phase at the moment of the decision. You know I think the reality of of what that looks like is, you know, still somewhere down the track, and it's, it, uh, you know, those those who know know how hard it's going to be. Uh, I mean, I take your point. Uh, you know, I think one of the things I was disappointed about with the DSR was that we went through that whole process, then we get to the end, and we're now going to have these extra reviews. Like you would have thought, we could have just knocked those out at the same time. That I think that is that is disappointing. I mean, we had been saying to clients that. We think the DSR is going to be a series of signposts, and I think we were right in that regard rather than the hard decisions. Grant, you mentioned the IIP before. That's it's going to be, you know, I wouldn't, want, wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall in those meetings about putting the IIP together. I think that's a massive challenge uh, for the ADF. And uh, so, you know, I think whilst we've got the DSR, I think a lot of the work's still ahead of us, really, about uh, on a number of those fronts and but one thing I think which you know which I think is going to cast a long shadow over our defense uh, industry for some time is this notion that the RDF wants to buy more of what's ready now and um, you know our role our defense industry role in that I think is going to be you know quite significantly challenged until such time as we come up with some compromise model which will Allows uh, allows Australian industry to get more involved in AUKUS industry, if you like. If you think about it in the way that I described it before, Mark, on the um, on the FMS question, uh, you know, we've been ta- a lot of this. We've been sort of talking about the culture within defence and CASG, and um, you know, this has sort of come up in the DSR when they mentioned the culture of striving for perfection at the expense of um, timeliness. Um, you know, there's also this culture of buying American. I think uh, I've read somewhere recently that South Korea has um, probably the greatest, one of the greatest defense industrial capacities in terms of its ability to put out vast quantities of material uh, platforms and munitions at great speed. 
yet Australia just seems to be, and defence in particular, seems to be so averse to anything other than American FMS purchases and just generally buying American platforms. Is that a cultural issue in the government? I mean, what, why, is, why is that? Look, it's a really good observation. Well, look what Poland did. Right? So Poland is, just, is going through you know, the greatest rearmament in modern history, and it's all being supplied by the South Koreans. If you have a look at it, you know, 600 self-propelled guns, you know, like it's just insane. And if you, you can see it on YouTube, you know, you can map from when the Poles signed up for their self-propelled guns. I think the first 30, was it, or something were delivered in like four months, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable, right? It's just the most extraordinary thing. And, and I think that it, it, if, if you look inside the Defence Force, we have, do have a very, very strong history of, you know, Australians being posted into the US, into the US Army, Navy, or Air Force, you know, uh, we do have, you know, Australian uh, officers being seconded to US defence company. You know, uh, Andy Bottrell uh, did a number of secondments in the US with people like Boeing and that before he took over as the head of um, Land Systems Division. And, um, you know, I think that there is a very, there are very high levels of confidence within the ADF for anything that comes from the US and, and, you know, and if we if, if we do deploy an operations in the Indo-Pacific, it's quite likely that we're going to be operating shoulder to shoulder with the Americans, right? So I think in, in one sense, I, I sort of understand that. If you look at the political situation in South Korea at the moment, they're coming out of a period of uh, of, of, um, new, of of being, you know, uh, neutral as far as their um, as far as their uh, allies are concerned. That 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 is changing and moving more towards the Quad or um, and so I think in the fullness of time where we do have greater levels of interoperability with South Korea within those constructs like the Quad or, you know, whatever, uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, I think you might find a correspondingly more, uh, more preparedness to reach into the South Korean industrial complex to satisfy our uh, procurement requirements. The, the reality is, though, that Poland's order has soaked up Hanwha's operating or production capacity for three years. So they're tapped out, right? So that's, you know, the Poland order, in fact, was a fairly significant determinant of Hanwha making that decision to build two extra halls here in Geelong and to move all of the redback production into Australia, right? So um, it's not, you know, uh, the South Koreans don't have a limitless capacity either and Poland has just tapped that out and it's a bit like a tomahawk order you know uh, before we got our order in the Japanese ordered 500 tomahawk cruise missiles which is effectively two years of production out of the Raytheon facility so if we'd have made that decision two or three months earlier we'd have been ahead of the Japanese order and I, you don't know what's been negotiated behind the scenes obviously but um, but on a, on a pure sort of um, chronology uh, basis for those orders. Our order is now behind the Japanese order. And so I think this is a really good model for what happens in the fullness of time when our defence budget gets to 4% or 5% or 6%, you know, as our geopolitical situation starts to, you know, get a lot worse. 
about what the supply chain is going to look like when we get to that point because everyone's going to be trying to source the same gear, you know, effectively, and so we're going to be further behind. Well, it's it's very much if you if you know your history of the 30s and 40s of World War II, it's very similar to how Australia was with respect to the UK and the USA. Uh, there was absolute sacrilege and outrage in the government when our aviation group went over Wackett and Co to the USA and came back with the um, NA16, which became the Wirraway. Sacrilege. Yeah. We were buying American yeah. engines and <laughs> aircraft and license yeah. building them. Yeah. It's so similar to what's happening now with us and the USA. Yes, you are correct. There's the interoperability capability, and, and that's a very major part. But you know, our own Air Force in the 20s had a review from an RAF officer, not internal, same as the Navy now, a US officer. But are we seeing that, yeah, as things get crunch time, okay, all bets are off, let's go with whoever can supply? Well, look, I, I, I think one thing you can rely upon that is that every country will act in a chain self-interest. <laughs> yes. You know, and I think that the DSR fails to take that into account. You know, I think it it does sort of say that uh, that uh, in this unipolar you know, world that we live in, that the US is not now not the preeminent um, operator mm. in our region, and so we need to plan for that. I, I, I think that it, it doesn't sort of take the self-interest angle into account. And, and you you talk about the 30s and 40s, Grant. I'm reading a book at the moment by David Horner called War Games, and right now I'm reading about the and that book's about the um, relationship between uh, the defence forces, high command, and and uh, politicians. In Australia, it starts in World War One and goes right up to Afghanistan. And I'm reading the part on the Second World War at the moment, and on pretty much every page there, you can draw a line through Japan, right China in over the top, and the situation we find ourselves in is exactly the same. Yeah, it, it, it's it's uncanny how similar it is. And uh, so, you know, there is, you know, it's a bit like this uh, this uh, this issue about are we going to end up having the you know the uh, close combat or the close battle. You know, if we, you know, if you accept that there are lots of lessons for today in, in, in our history, well, in the same way that we struggle to understand how our supply chains could be disrupted by, you know, uh, an overwhelming maritime force and battles like, you know, the Coral Sea, Battle of the Coral Sea, then, you know, I think, you know, that it is a very, very good template, I think, for, you know, where we're at where we're at now. I mean, the, everything compressed as far as timelines are concerned, but I don't think this, the, 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 the challenges are a lot different uh, to what we find today. And the thing that I do worry about is this notion that countries will, and this is exactly what happened in the Second World War, the British and the Americans initially acted in their own self-interest. And it just was lucky for us that eventually Australia became part of that self-interest. And so we, you know, we obviously got that response. But you know, in relation to supply chains, we, we just, you know, we just, we're ne- I mean, we're never going to have the US, the capacity of the US industrial complex, but I think we need to do need to be far more robust in the capacities, the capabilities and capacities that we have here. Uh, not just, not from a just in case perspective, but I think we should assume, coming back to your point about the rate of usage in the Ukraine, that at some point there's going to be stuff that we need that we can't get. That's inevitable. Mark, you mentioned earlier, uh, a little while ago, you know, this idea of the Gordian knot and 
the fact that the government can't just turn on the tap of uh, defence industry when it needs it and expect everything to be there. Similar to, you know, when COVID first arrived, it found it couldn't just turn on the tap of, um, you know, medical supplies and PPE and expect it all to just be there. But the, the centre of the Gordian knot in both of those examples is public opinion and is disconnect between uh, the public perception of our geopolitical situation and the geopolitical situation as you know, people in defence see it. And the, def- the supply chain that we think we need can only really eventuate if the government was politically able to spend far more in the sector, but it can't do that, obviously, until the Australian public understands the situation that, that we're in. Uh, where does that leave the DSR, I think, in terms of its ability to actually achieve what it says we should be achieving or what defence should be achieving? It's a good question, right? So FB has this really great graph uh, that it produces, which talks about, uh, which is a, a survey of the Australian population. Uh, you know, I think it's statistically significant, but I'm, I don't know what the actual numbers are where it talks about how important is defence in relation to other things that you're um, uh, you're thinking about, you know, the people in the community. I just opened it up while we are talking and um, it's interesting. So for the last 12 years, defence has been as low as 18th as far as the priorities are concerned for your average Australian. And it's averaged at about 14 over the past 12 years and is is, is absolutely behind things like healthcare, crime, cost of living, unemployment, housing, the state of the economy, immigration and the environment. So we've never, defence has never been in the top 10 in the last 20 years. It's 14 at the moment, it'll be interesting to see what FB uh, says this year with, um, uh, I guess it might come out after the budget. I don't know. Marcus Elliott will obviously be out uh, with his uh, cost of defence analysis. So, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I do wonder when we have such a such a challenge with the Russians and Chinese in the cyber domain while we're not having that conversation with the Australian public. And I do wonder why it is that more broadly we're not having a conversation with the Australian public about what needs to happen as far as defence spending is concerned and how the government thinks it's going to deal with that and start you know, doing that. I mean, we have done it in the past. You know, Hawke and Keating were very good at having those conversations with the Australian public around a whole range of different matters and it's something that it's an art that we've lost in our, uh, in our politics here, but it's absolutely you know, something that we should be talking about. And until such time as we do that, I think you're quite right. We're still going to have all this conversation about, well, you know, we did, you know, we don't need to buy submarines because we'd be spending that $380 billion on social housing. And but we absolutely could do that. You know, that, that that's absolutely something that we could do. But it's it, the reason that we're even having that conversation is because the government hasn't gone to the people and talked to them about what the, you know, what our geopolitical situation is now and how it's likely to evolve over time. And so, you know, we're up against it. You and I, I think you're absolutely right in relation to having to justify every single dollar that we choose to spend on defence and don't choose to spend in the NDIS or in on education or, you know, whatever. Look, it's very hard to have those discussions, though, though when you look at the current political environment and the level of community discussion. It's TikTok, it's sound bites, 
since the 80s, 90s, and we're on the downward trend. And of course, you've also got the disinformation wars that are going on online. And yeah, it's it's rapid. It's very hard to get those discussions out without either being yeah. called a hawk yeah. or a warmonger, yeah, a yeah, fearmonger, yeah. etc. Yeah, I've of course been called all of those things, Grant. So uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, social media is great like that. Um, look, look I, I think you're right, but but I think that you need to try and have those conversations. If in the fullness of time, you need to make some hard decisions with that funding. And you've tried to do it. You can say, look, we tried to have that conversation with the Australian people 18 months ago. People didn't want to listen or they weren't listening or, you know, whatever it is. Well, now here's the consequence of that. But, you know, you don't just turn around tomorrow and say, okay, so we've, as the political situation is worse and such that we now need to be spending 6% of GDP on defence, not, you know, 2.2. That's not going to be, that's just not going to be possible. Um, unless we've done some work to prepare Australian society for that change in focus and emphasis. I mean, if uh, in the year before the pandemic arrived, if you'd made the case for, you know, the investment in the materials that were required and the investment in programs like JobKeeper, you know, uh, would have been very difficult to get that across the line politically. But as soon as the first cases arrive, suddenly many things become possible. And that may be the case in defence industry. It's just that, as you said, um, capability, supply chains can't be turned on. The tap just can't be turned on. But again, the, I suppose these are con- the constraints imposed by democracy, which is ultimately why we're, yeah, no, that's why we're doing this. Yeah, well, that's when you, and when your adversary is an autocrat, they don't have to have those conversations, right? So that's <laughs> no. absolutely true. Can I, can I just come back to another point, though, which I, I think we touched on before, but I think we uh, underdone. So... Um, one of the things that was recommended in the DSR is that defence, uh, that there's a, a greater use of um, unsolicited offers or sole sourcing in, uh, for solutions, and that's in addition to FMS. And this is an area that we've, you know, done a lot of work with our with clients on, and we've had some very, very good success. But what I would say to people listening to this podcast is that for the next six months, uh, there's, there is a massive opportunity in this period of uh, flux for companies with great solutions that are ready now to go to defence and offer those as a solution. And I'd be saying this to Australian industry, you know, there are, there are some great businesses out there who, uh, you know, who are doing great things. You know, the, at one end, you've got people like Bird and at the other end, you've got people like, like Guy Aerospace and Cord Defence. And, you know, there's a whole range of, you know, great uh, businesses out there that, don't underestimate the opportunity for an unsolicited offer. And just to be clear, an unsolicited offer is an offer that's capable of acceptance at the time of submission. So it's got to be fully costed, fully scoped, uh, fully understood. I think that's, that's one thing that I think is clear out of the DSR. And the second thing which comes out of the DSR, and we've I've been saying this for years, but I think it's even more important than ever, is that Australian defence industry needs to understand capability and they need to frame all their conversations with defence through the lens of thick of the fix, you know, going to have it, going to have a conversation with the defence about your product without framing it in the within the terminology of capability is a conversation that won't ever have a successful solution. But doing the work up front to frame your product or service uh, within uh, the framework of of the fundamental inputs to capability, and with the full knowledge of what the pressure points are. For defence, which I think are, are more apparent than ever as a consequence of DSR, um, is absolutely an opportunity right now for local companies to be doing. Um, you know, I, I, 
you know, I know that Australian industry always feels as though it's waiting. Well, we don't wait, right? Our clients don't wait. You know, we're always on the front foot with defence. And the other thing I'd say is don't ever have that conversation with a prime, have it with defence directly first because invariably it's uh, it, it, the, the defence will be the um, will be the organisation that directs the prime to move in a particular way. And if you've got a product or service which defence is interested in, and I could talk about you know our experience with Eptec, for instance, uh, Naval Sustainment business here in Australia that's increased their defence revenue by almost 240 percent. And the single most important thing they did was to move their primary relationship from being with the Prime to being with defence itself, even though their route to contract was through the Prime. By having that primary relationship with people like Wendy Malcolm and um, Steve Tiffin and, uh, you know, uh, people in the submarine program, that was the thing that moved the dial for them. And that's what I'd be saying to anyone listening to this podcast is in defence industries, don't allow yourself to be disintermediated from defence by a prime, you need to have good relationships with both. But for the next six months, there is a real opportunity to get into defence and talk to them about stuff which is market ready or which is capability ready right now. Well, Mark, this has been an incredible discussion and we've gone tangential to the questions we <laughs> thought we'd ask. <laughs> we should do it more often, guys. We should do it more often. There's so much to talk about. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting situation over the next 12 to 18 months. So I, I, I foresee a few more of these. Uh, you yeah, and you, you, know, you, know, you know where I am, and I'm always <laughs> happy for a chat, as you know. Um, and look, you know, we, we love ADM, so anytime, anytime. Mark, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. I think um, as the DSR, you know, as the impacts of the DSR unfold over the next, uh, over the, well, the years, um, we'll definitely be on again to, to talk this through. So thanks, thanks very much for your time. No, no, no. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks, Mark. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice as this helps others discover our show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.